Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Sandy Gibson, founder of Better Place Forests. Better Place Forests is America's first conservation memorial forests. So instead of graves and tombstones, families choose a private protected family tree to return their ashes to the earth together. In this episode, we talk about life, building a business that focuses on the end of life, burial traditions and ceremonies. Sandy is one of the most unique founders I've had on the show. And his story is extremely inspiring of how he's got to where he is. Without further ado, here's Sandy. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. I wanted to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? So when I was growing up, my both my parents were lawyers. and uh, But my mom had a huge amount of respect for her father, who was an entrepreneur. He was from Northern England. His parents were cheesemongers. They had like a little cheese shop, shop in Yorkshire. And he'd kind of come over 1920s. had worked as a radio salesman. And when he lost all his money in the Great Depression, he started his own company. And so she just had grown up really respecting the people who built their own businesses and created jobs and took control of their own destiny. So I think I grew up with that. And then after my mom got cancer, she ended up starting a nonprofit called Wellspring. And Wellspring is a cancer support network where cancer survivors provide counseling and support to cancer patients. And I just saw how that grew. And now there's you know, 12 or 13 centers across Canada. Uh, I think over 100,000 families have gone through it. It's just had this huge impact on the world. And it was amazing to see after she died, just this, this thing that she created just keep continuing to matter in the world. And so I think entrepreneurship is a real opportunity to you know, have an impact that's really positive in the world, whether it's from the people who work for your company and can live a great life because they work with great people and they have a great job to the product or service itself and how it impacts the world. I just think it's a, a really nice way to control your own destiny and do something that matters. No, totally. I think part of your attraction, just thinking about your mom's story, was really driven by the communities that you can build through entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, kind of the influence and the impact. You know, I think if you're a musician, you impact a lot of people's lives in a, in a small but really beautiful way. When they listen to a song, you know, their life is different or better because they listen to it. I think with entrepreneurship and building companies, you can have a huge amount of impact with the products that you create, the experiences your customers have using them or experiencing them with the service as well as for the people who work with you and their lives. Why did you decide to focus, when you were thinking about entrepreneurship, the burial, end-of-life uh, space or, or market? So I co-founded Better Place Forest with two of my friends from high school. One, Brad Milne, our, our COO now, who's been my best friend since I was 12. And we've been software entrepreneurs since we were in college. Our last business we were running was kind of B2B marketing automation software. And it wasn't the most exciting business to run in the world. And when we were looking for something to do, you know, we thought about different businesses we understood. And one of the things we really focused on that I thought was really interesting was something that I'd heard, which was that, you know, when you look at the great businesses in the world, they often fit into three themes. Uh, if you look at people and if you measure them by how many people have become billionaires building a business, and there's a lot of people who made their money in finance or real estate through leverage. But if you take those out 
uh, the guy who'd done this research with his team had seen that, you know, you saw a lot of businesses that fit into kind of one of three categories, making the world more fun, like a Red Bull, making the world more efficient, like a Google or a Facebook, or making the world like more beautiful, uh, like, you know, I would argue maybe Lululemon or uh, many, many of the fashion companies. And I thought that was really interesting. And so when we were thinking about what we wanted to do next, we asked ourselves, you know, what do we want to dedicate our next, you know, seven to 14 years to? And our answer was, we really like the idea of making the world more beautiful. Now, going and trying to start a business, being like, I'm going to make the world more beautiful is not really very easy. You find a lot of stuff that are not real business opportunities. And it happened that uh, my business partner saw an idea for uh, kind of trees instead of tombstones that people have been, that's an idea that I think is very fundamental that people have always thought about. He sent me one of those ideas. He said, what do you think about this? Is this business? I said, no, you know, cemeteries are incredibly expensive. There's no way you can plant biodegradable caskets in a cemetery. Uh, They're way, way too expensive. That's a terrible business, bad idea. And about a week later, it was my mom's birthday. And the context for this is when I was 10 years old, my dad died of a stroke unexpectedly. And we had to go to the cemetery and buy a burial plot for him. And so we bought six plots. And at the time, my mom had cancer, but it was remission. So we thought it had gone away. And about a year later, it came back. So she died when I was 11. And so I spent my whole life going to their grave. So it was 20 years after my mom uh, had died on her birthday. And I was back at the grave. And I was just standing there. It's like this crowded cemetery right by the street. There's a bus stop right by it. And I'm just standing there. And I'm like, God, I don't like this place. And then I hear the bus stop. And I'm like, and I think I, I swear lightly. And I'm like, God, there's got to be a better place than this. And I left the cemetery and called up Brad. It's like, I know what we're doing next. We're going to do... We're going to do the tree thing, but we're going to be the space that you go and visit. Uh, and that's really where it came from. And so the idea of a better place for us was to create a sustainable alternative to cemeteries, where instead of a grave and a tombstone, you'd have a beautiful final resting place with your ashes spread beneath a tree. And instead of taking up space like a cemetery might, you're actually giving space back as a conservation area to the world. But we did a lot of Google consumer surveys, and then we started running a lot of ads uh, to test early on. And I remember... Someone had seen one of our test ads on Facebook and called me up. She hadn't clicked on the ad because she didn't trust online advertising, but she took, she found the name and she found her test website and, you know, I'd registered it with my, my phone number and she found my phone number and called me up and said, hi, is, it, is this better place? Said, uh, yeah. It was my personal cell. And she said, oh, great. And we start talking about this project. I said, look, this doesn't exist. This is just an idea. Is it something you'd be interested in? And we talked through it and it was really interesting and it was really beautiful. She was in her 50s and she had a son with de- developmental disabilities and she just wanted a place that, so that he would never have to worry about it and that he would know she was somewhere beautiful. She knew he'd never visit. Um, she wasn't looking for that kind of aspect of a traditional cemetery. She just wanted somewhere beautiful that, so that when he thought of her, she, he could know she was there. And I think that's when I was like, this is definitely going to work. We had a lot of you know consumer survey data that I think made sense that it was going to work. But that moment, and then at the end of it, you know, again, very clearly, this doesn't exist. I'll, I'll call you if we ever get this opened. Uh, and she said, well, thank you so much for creating this. And I remember I, I called up Brad and I said, this is incredible. I just talked to a potential customer. And at the end of it, she said, thank you. And he was kind of stunned as well on the phone. I said, we've been running a B2B software company for seven years. And I don't think anyone ever said thank you once. Right. And we had multiple customers who had won like international marketing awards because of the strategies. And, you know, it's just no one cared. And that's not to denigrate, you know, B2B marketing. It can be a really important, valuable thing. It's just not, wasn't what spoke to us. So I think that moment, that human connection, uh, that's when I kind of deep down in my, my gut knew it was going to work. Uh, but really the data showed it. And the other thing is, I believe in an idea I call the existing cash transaction, which is to create, find a really good opportunity. You want to find something people spend money on today. 
and you want to identify a very clear technological change or societal change, it's like a wave of change that's putting it back into play. And with what we do, I thought that was really clear. You know, you've got burial plots and, you know, we've been creating cemeteries and final resting places for 50,000 years. You can find some of the earliest uh, examples of civilization in Germany, I think 55,000 year old cemeteries. And so this is something that we've, we've been doing for a very, very long time. And the technology is cremation, right? It's a huge societal shift towards cremation. And that changes everything because if you're cremated, you know, do you want to be buried in a cemetery? Do you want your ashes separate from nature forever in an urn? Or do you want them back as a part of nature in the cycle of life? Like these are all things that become questions again. And so I think it fits really well with the idea of like classic, you know, Clayton Christensen style disruption theory. Like there is a value chain in an industry is fundamentally changing because of cremation, which I believe creates an opportunity. And I think that's what we've seen. And that's why we've seen it so hard for people to compete with us. When you think about resting places and this, this sense of like eternity, how are you able to make people feel comfortable that the resting place will, would be a tree rather than something that could last longer? Yeah. So again, I think the context for that is that we're dealing with cremation. We're dealing with customers who have chosen cremation. So they've already made that decision that they're generally not looking for a mausoleum or a permanent, physically separated final resting place. They're generally looking for something that's a little more akin to a natural burial ground uh, or a place to come back to. And I think part of the beauty of trees is that they are something that, you know, they have a finite life, but that life is generally longer than a human's. And so we see them as something that connects us to future generations. And I think when we're thinking about end of life, what we're really buying when you're buying a burial plot or you're buying a funeral plan is I think you're buying connection after you're gone. You're really, you're looking to connect the people who you love and reach out to them in some way and show them that you still love them, that you care for them. And in your own way, also know that you won't be forgotten. Um, and I think that's really the, the thing that people are doing when they're planning their end of life. Uh, or... If someone they've loved has passed, they're burying them somewhere. I think that's, again, they're doing it because they want to remain connected and they need that sense of place and they need that ritual to do so. So for us, you know, I think it's just a different mindset than a traditional burial customer. Um, and then why now? It really is that cremation rate. It really is. As so many people choose cremation, there just are a lot of people looking for something new in a place that used to be very, very traditional. Once you had those potential customer calls, you saw a lot of these Google Forms and you, and you really realized that there's something here. What was that process like securing land and actually developing maybe on the supply side to actually kick off the business? Yeah, that's really hard. It's a really, really hard part of our business. So every single county or city in the country has different laws for development. Uh, And every state has different laws around cemeteries and ashes and uh, spreading ashes and where you can and can't do that. Uh, So you're dealing with a lot of legal complexity. And it's not something that you can just easily solve because you know, again, every county is different. And then you also have to remember that it's always political. Land is always political. Uh, do your neighbors want you there? It doesn't really matter if you have by right use. If your neighbors really, really don't want you there, it's still going to be a fight. So, you know, you'd think what we do is pretty straightforward. We buy land, protect it forever. Generally, that's seen as a good thing, but it's not always. You know, you have to spend a lot of time reaching out because it's new, it's different. No one's ever done it before. You spend a lot of time doing outreach to neighbors, uh, building relationships within communities. Uh, finding landowners who want to sell you their land, finding land that actually works for a purpose. Because again, it has to be very specific. It's got to be beautiful. It's got to have high conservation value. It's got to be quite flat. Uh, so it's just a lot goes into it. We've got a full land team of eight to 10 people. Uh, our chief real estate officer used to do some of the kind of biggest super high-end developments on the West Coast and in Hawaii. He's this incredible real estate developer who just saw what we do as interesting and kind of wanted to do it with us because no one had ever done it before. 
But that is, is a big challenging part. So we do buy land from private landowners at full market price, and we do turn it into permanently protected conservation areas by working with the county as well as sometimes land trusts for conservation easements, as well as creating an endowment fund. Uh, but it's, it's really unique because every single county is different, including how you structure the permanent protection needs to be fit with that county's laws. Walk us through how you were able to secure your first piece of land. So the very first piece of land we ever looked at was in Yosemite. And unfortunately, it didn't work for a number of, of reasons related to access and cost. You know, being flat and walkable is really important. Uh, but when you're 33 years old and you're know, wandering around in Yosemite, you're like, this is amazing. Hiking over a boulder, you're like, everyone's going to want to do this. Uh, that's a bit of a misread of our customers. Uh, but you know, some people do want that, but not everyone. Other people want something that's easier to walk to. Uh, so our first property, we found it up in Mendocino. Uh, I remember driving up to Point Arena and getting there. And uh, we found it. It was the right price. It was gorgeous. It was a redwood forest. So we were looking for, uh, we were looking through all the permitting and talking to the county and it all made sense. And it looked like we could do it. it looked like we could afford it and get the deal done. Uh, we had to raise a fair amount of money to start the company just because you are buying land. And I just remember walking onto it, walking into this meadow and looking out over the ocean and just thinking after this gorgeous drive, I'd never driven up route one in California from San Francisco to Mendocino. And it was this gorgeous drive. I remember looking out and touching a redwood and thinking this is going to work. And that was really special. So that has, it's, uh, we love that for us. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago for press interview and it is all of your stress goes away when you walk in there. And now that it's being, it's operational now that families are coming and visiting and spreading their loved ones in the forest, it's even more special and beautiful when you walk into it. It's something you really have to experience to understand. That's really interesting. And also, I really appreciate you sharing just how the first part of land that that you really looked at in in Yosemite, how you thought it was had all the features that you wanted. This is actually not what potential customers want in terms of ease of access to. One of the challenges with starting a company, right, is you're going to build a product, you realize you're wrong, you got to change it. And you've got to kind of learn, fail, repeat, breathe, or sorry, try, fail, learn, repeat as fast as possible. And when you're dealing with something with a big physical product, a capital asset like this, you can't do that that quickly. Uh, you really have to make sure that you're not making mistakes on your properties. And, you know, it's interesting. So it just takes a lot of time and effort to really learn how to do that quickly and, and discover exactly what your customers want. And to figure out what your customers wanted, was that kind of done through surveys? A little bit of surveys, a lot of, you know, one of our most important company values is do the dishes. And the reason we say that is that we really like our leaders to do the work themselves. If you want to be the chef, you also have to be willing to be the cook and the bottle washer. And I personally, I like that style of leadership. I think it's important from a company standpoint in something where nothing, you can't copy anything. Everything's being done for the first time. I think you really have to get your hands dirty. And so when we started the company, you know, we didn't raise money for a long time. We raised friends and family, uh, let's say, I think about a million dollars. And we didn't raise venture for a while. And it was, and even when we did, you know, we raised this money, we didn't spend any of it, which was very weird for a VC fund. They were kind of looking at us like, what are you doing? Why are you not hiring people? We just gave you all this money. Um, and I said, well, I'm trying to get the sales process right, figure this product out. So I, you know, I did the first couple hundred sales calls, sold the first couple hundred customers, did the first hundred and something tours in the forest uh, personally, because I think it's really important to get that feel. So little bit of, you know, correctly done research, a little bit of fast and easy research, and a lot of just get out there and sell it. And see what speaks to customers, see what messaging works with customers, learn why people are buying. So, um, you know, maybe not the most scientific approach, but one that I, I really like for building new products. No, I like that. I like that a lot. What were some of your learnings since you came from like an enterprise SaaS background, you were an enterprise SaaS entrepreneur. What were some of the learnings from that experience building that company when you started Better Place? So 
The most important one I think that matters for other entrepreneurs is to know that when you're building a business, you need to find a solution people want to buy that matches a go-to-market for that price point. So what I mean is you might have, uh, with our last company this happened, we had a great solution. It was really good. We targeted kind of a a lower-end SaaS uh, market. We had this great product where we could kind of analyze all the company's content and compile that into really effective newsletters and microsites and apps where people could you know, see content internally like employees or customers could engage with that content. And it was super efficient, really, really high levels of engagement, uh, but no one wanted to pay for it, what it cost. You know, they're paying for $60,000 a year for marketing automation platform. They don't want to pay $60,000 for this, this application on top of it. Um, but the problem was to educate someone on something completely new and customize the setup for every single use case, you couldn't make money if you sold it for less than $50,000 a year. And those two things just didn't work. It was a solution that was good, but people didn't want to spend 50 grand a year on it. So it was very tough for us to scale. You know, we're building more, uh, more of a small business than like a fast growing startup. So what we learned was that you have to match those two numbers. So our current product, you know, this is a final resting place. Your average funeral in the US is about $8,000. We're, we're more affordable than that, but you know, you need to go to market that matches that price point. So what was important to us is we were able to afford to have an inside sales team, but not an outbound inside sales team. You know, you're not going to have an SDR team that does outreach to customers at that price point. You're going to have to be an inbound funnel uh, to make those numbers work. So I do think there's some important lessons learned matching those two things. You know, if you uh, there's no point in building a car that you can only make money selling for 150 grand if there's no way to take it to market. Totally. And it seems like as well, in terms of your sales process, I mean, it's more similar to like an enterprise SaaS sales process, right? Than like your typical consumer company, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's an inside sales cycle. Some of our customers can convert very, very quickly. Uh, we do have e-commerce, uh, which works quite well. People can explore the forest on their own and buy on their own. But you know, you're often dealing with an older customer, someone who's a little bit less comfortable with, someone who can be a little bit less comfortable with buying things online. So they will end up spending talking to salespeople. The key is to learn your way into it. Uh, we're getting better at better at making that more efficient, but that's required a huge amount of investment in technology to bring someone into the forest online, to create an online experience where they can buy online. Uh, and it's been hugely important to our business at scaling. If we'd have started that way, it, I don't think the numbers ever would have worked. How long is your typical sales cycle? Uh, anywhere from one to two weeks up to years. You know, it's a product that I think resonates with a lot of people very quickly. And when I say resonates with a lot of people, I mean, you know, this is across the country. This isn't, this isn't a coastal elite product. A lot of people would assume it is. Uh, this is something that you know everyone loves their family, everyone loves nature. It's pretty apolitical. Sometimes I joke that you know our customers are split, a third Democrat, a third Republican, a third independent. So it's very, very middle of the road product. I joke that last year, but the only thing Americans could agree on was they liked a better place for us. And the key is that like you're gonna reach out to a lot of people, but are they in a mental space to choose this? Do they want to plan ahead right now? So you've got to build that relationship over a long time. Let's say you run like an SMB SaaS business. Sometimes people will just hire an outbound SDR team and they will just hammer through every single small business and call them until they say, take me off the list. And like, you can do that, but you're not going to build long-term relationships. We have to build long-term relations with customers because there will come a moment where they are ready to plan and we have to be there when they're ready. So sometimes it's very quick, but sometimes it can take years. So you've really got to build a really good relationship. You know, our, our net promoter scores hovers between an 85 and a 90. And given that most of our customers are planning for themselves, that's really a reflection of the sales and marketing process and the, and the product experience around pardon, choosing your tree. So that's what we really seek to do. We want to build that really strong experience. And since it is a sensitive topic to discuss, how did you approach it from like a marketing standpoint? The first thing you got to do is figure out the positioning. 
you know, what are you selling against? And in our case, you know, we're dealing with people who are often coming up to space considering a cemetery. And we're trying to very politely, and, you know, we've been overly critical of cemeteries in the past. And that doesn't work because people don't want to hear criticism of a place that someone they love might be in. So we have to be very, very careful about how to say that because we're not saying a cemetery is bad. I think there's lots of good things about cemeteries. Uh, we're just saying that for someone who wants something different, you know, we're a great alternative. At the same time, we have to explain and educate people on the concept of why a final resting place matters. You know, often people don't think it matters and then spread ashes kind of anywhere. And then later on, wish they had a place to go back to or wish they knew where they could bring their kids or wish they had a marker. You know, there's all these or had a bad experience doing a spreading. Uh, There's all these things that are hard to explain in a way that doesn't sound vulgar. Uh, The way I would explain it is I think it's authenticity. I think you just want to be really honest. A lot of our sales folks talk specifically about their experience losing someone, their experience of why they chose to work for Better Place Forests. And I think that goes over really well with our customers. I think that's what they're craving for is authenticity. And I think it's not something that's easily accessible today. You know, maybe it's one of the reasons people want podcasts instead of TV shows. We like connecting directly with real people. When did you decide to raise capital and what was that process like? So we've raised a lot of money. Um, you know, we raised almost $60 million and we've had to raise a lot of money because our, our business is somewhat capital intensive. It's not very, very capital intensive. It's not like we're building like a semiconductor plant or a manufacturing center, something like that. But the challenge is fundraising in a startup is you know, you're dealing with step functions. Like your goal is to cross a threshold where your business is worth a lot more so you can raise money at the new price. And every time you raise money, you need to cross one of those thresholds. So, you know, they used to say, you know, seed is proving there's a market. A is to get, you raise A to get product market fit. You get B to scale and you get C to, you know, optimize your unit economics. I think those things might've flipped recently, or I think maybe now you raise B and you're supposed to do both at the same time, scale and improve your unit economics, uh, which is always a challenge. Um, But for us, you know, we had to prove that people wanted to buy our product, then raise funds so we could buy the first piece of land and hire up the team to open it. Uh, then we raised our Series A to start expanding to multiple forests and really start building more of a, a brand and a product as opposed to just kind of a small business with you know some decent branding. And you know we were really lucky. We had guys like Cole Rise, Arnie Corraldo do our early photography and our brand. Um, Cole Rise designed the first Instagram filters and the Instagram logo. Arnie Corraldo got the cover of uh, National Geographic the month after he shot our forest. We were lucky. They only did that because they liked our product. And then, but after Series A, you've got to build a real scalable brand. So you raise money for that uh, and kind of building your whole team. B was so we could span across the country. Uh, so that's kind of why it was capital intensive. We just, if you want to open 10 forests, you got to go buy 10 forests. And we're in a world where there's not a lot of capital available for new ideas. You know, the traditional way of building a business, you wanted to build an airplane, uh, or sorry, an airline, you know, you get lease financing on most of the planes. You know, there's no lease financing for a forest uh, like ours. There is if you want to do timber, but when you want to protect it forever and not cut, that's different. So it's just different in each space. And for us, it's venture capital that's been available. Which parts of the country are you currently in and where are you hoping to expand to? Has there been like a part of the country that's been really hard to find a forest? Uh, there are some markets that are very challenging because of regulation. Uh, they don't, not everywhere is friendly to a new idea. So, uh, you know, that can be tough. Uh, sometimes the county level, sometimes the state level. But generally, uh, it's been pretty great expanding across the country. You know, we started in California. Uh, we're going to be expanded throughout California later this year. Uh, we're in Arizona. We're in Minnesota, near the Twin Cities. Uh, we just announced a forest just outside of Chicago in Illinois. Uh, we've announced forests in the Berkshires in Massachusetts and in Litchfield Hills in Connecticut. 
So uh, that's been really exciting. This year's been a lot of expansion, and it's been really wonderful. And you know that was a challenge. COVID made finding forests and getting your forests permitted in what are mostly local in-person county proceedings when they're mostly shut down. Uh, COVID was a real challenge. But we were able to find these forests, really get these forests permitted. And now we're starting to bring the market, open them up for customers to visit this summer. It's been really amazing. And then I hope to announce a couple more uh, throughout the rest of the country later this year. And then next year, uh, really just keep bringing Better Place Forest to more and more cities across the country. On the demand side during COVID, was there any change in terms of demand that was unusual or different than what you were anticipating? Well, we had no idea what was going to happen, right? I think like every company in the world, when COVID struck, you know, it was it was pretty scary running a business. What we found was our customers are pre-planning for themselves. So we didn't really get a huge amount of a difference mm-hmm. in the sense that COVID itself would be beneficial to end-of-life companies. I, I don't think you saw much of that in this space. What you did see was a much higher level of interest as people started thinking about planning. So a lot of the companies that provide free wills or which provide kind of end-of-life planning, advanced care directives, they have done very, very well uh, because there's a huge amount of increase in traffic. So now we're working on building partnerships with all them uh, because they're, as their customers want to learn more about how to plan, we want to make sure they know what planning with us can look like. And since in your business, you're always having to acquire a new customer, right? How do you think about maybe offering like additional products? I guess just like different ways that you're able to extend like the life of the customer, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, obviously right now, everyone's very, very focused on SaaS. The, we're a pretty high ticket item. And if you're a real estate, if you're, you know, if you're a condo developer or a real estate developer, you know, your focus is making the unit economics work the first time, not on how do I sell you a second home after I sell you the first. Uh, in our case, we do have a lifelong relationship though. So, you know, the first thing this person's going to be choosing is a final resting place. But there's many other decisions that they will make in the rest of their life about how to plan for their end of life experience. And we're, we're testing this product now, how to help people plan the rest of their end of life experience. And set aside funds for it, it's a really beautiful, fun product to work on. And I say fun, I genuinely mean it. Because when you get people open-minded and creative, which is super hard to do when thinking about end of life, when people do open up their mind, they get really creative with ideas. Uh, I was on a call with a customer who wanted to plan and he was great. He's from New York and he's planning his kind of end of life experience for his family. You know, after they get the ashes back, what's he want them to do before they come to the forest? And his answer was, I want them all to eat Costco pizza. And I said, Costco pizza? Um, interesting choice. He says, yeah, at least one has to be cheese and the other can be pepperoni. You know what? Whatever they want. I don't care. But one has to be cheese. I said, why Costco pizza? He said, you know, closest thing to New York pizza I've had on the West Coast. And that, that's just, that's his feeling. And he loves Costco pizza. And I said, okay, great. Well, what do you want them all to drink? He said, Bud Light. And his wife was, was you know, not thrilled about the idea of her sons having to drink Bud Light and eat this pizza. So she said, no, 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 I want, I want both beers. So they created a plan together that I thought was really beautiful because it's personal, right? Uh, when my uncle passed away, he had the big traditional funeral uh, with the casket and the viewing and you know, buried in the church cemetery and the big reception of the golf course. But the night before, he wanted his six kids, me and my brother and a couple of his cousins to get together at his house and drink his favorite beers, wines, and whiskeys and eat his favorite cheeses, which were still near Ellsberg, and have his favorite dinner of beef bourguignon and tell his favorite jokes, which of course I will not repeat uh, because we don't do that anymore. And what was special about it was like, it was his. That was how Murray did things at Murray's house. And that's what I grew up doing with Murray. And so here he is gone, but we're doing Murray's thing. And he had planned it. He'd set it aside. And that's what I mean about connection after we're gone. 
So that's where we're really going as a, as a, as a business now is we're helping people find their final resting place and have a vision of what their place will be and know their family doesn't have to worry. But now it's how do we craft the rest of that experience? Uh, how do we build that connection after people are gone? That's personally what I'm super excited about working on. I love working with our customers directly. And I love kind of thinking about the new experiences we can create. They're really delightful in a place that, you know, end of life, there's almost no delight generally, but there can be because it's one of the most personal moments of someone's life. It's much like a wedding. Everyone you love is going to be together. How can you do something that's going to surprise them? Another one of our customers, uh, you know, planned ahead and what was really meaningful to him. And I loved it was he said, oh yeah, 24 people. Here's the list. Benny Hanna. That's what I want. And I'm like, I just love that, you know, that's going to happen. And these 24 people who are his close friends care about, they go, what do I do? And everyone wants to do something after you die. They want to show that they cared about you. And instead of wondering, do we throw a, do we throw a funeral? What's he want? Do we go to church? You know, I don't know. It's just like, no, no, you already planned it. You're all going to Benihana. And I love that. I just think it's special and it's fun. And it's just, you're kind of bringing, bringing a little bit of personality in life to something that so often doesn't have that. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? When I was growing up, I saw my mom get cancer and I grew up in a very religious family. And she asked herself, why did God do this to me? And she asked that a lot. Eventually, one day, she had this idea for Wellspring, that nonprofit I mentioned earlier, where cancer survivors provide counseling and support to cancer patients. She's, it hit her. She's like, that's it. That's why I got cancer. She, and you know, whether you believe that things are preordained or not, what matters is that something really bad happened. She got diagnosed with terminal cancer while she had a five-year-old neighbor. And she found an answer to why. And she created something good out of it. And I think that's very much like man's search for meanings, idea of overcoming unavoidable suffering. So I spent a lot of my life thinking about the same thing. You know, why did this happen? Uh, you know, why did my parents die as a kid? And which makes you very driven and focused, I think, on your career and where you go to school and things like that. So with our last company, Brad and I, we spent a lot of time thinking about what we wanted to do next. And in that, and I love listening to audiobooks. I spent a lot of time reading and thinking. And so I'll give you kind of the breakdown of the three books that I think matter. Um, the first is a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And it won the Pulitzer in 1974, a year after he died. I think he highlights something really interesting. I think he says something deep inside our psyche. It was an evolution of Freud and Jung's thinking. Deep inside our psyche, there is a desire that our mind is aware that our body is mortal. And our mind wants some way to live on afterwards and stay connected with the world. And usually that's by contributing to culture, hopefully in a good way, but occasionally in a bad way. And that would explain some of the you know, worst things we see in society. But generally, I think there's a really strong desire to contribute to society in some positive and lasting way. And so I think that's right. I think that's correct. And so for me, I wanted to find some way after I read about this to think like, how do you create something that can last after you're gone that's, that's positive? And I can see the question like, well, what is that? And so Viktor Frankl has a slightly different idea. And Viktor Frankl was working on this idea of logotherapy, meaning therapy, the idea that we need meaning to survive. And I'm going to try to tie these things together. and Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning, he was coming up to say logotherapy, meaning therapy, the idea that we need meaning to survive as human beings. And he was writing his uh, manuscript. And the problem was it was 1938. And he was a Jew in Vienna. Uh, and him and his wife were taken to Auschwitz. And she died quite quickly. And his jacket disappeared. Um, but he survived the Holocaust. And it's an incredible book to read. Um, it's one of the most powerful books I think most people read. And in it, he proposes the idea that we need meaning to survive. And the way we find meaning is through doing, through experiencing, and through overcoming unavoidable suffering. And that was really going. And doing would be, you'd see people who say, you know, I'm going to live because I love fishing and I'm, I'm going to fish again. Or experiencing the deepest experience with his love, you know, I'm going to stay alive because I want to see the person that I love again. Um, and I think those are really powerful ideas where people who can find a purpose in their suffering 
and say like, I have to survive because this happened and I know why it happened. And that I think was a very powerful idea, but I didn't know how to tie it together. Um, just like the denial of death, this idea that if you contribute to culture, you know, your mind knows it can live on. I really like the tie-in that comes from Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And in Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, uh, Robert Persig suggests the idea that the Greek philosophers were always looking for the thing that was eternal. You know, and they were like, is it fire? Is it water? Is it air? Is it atoms? Um, and we know it's obviously not those things anymore. And his proposal came from when he was reading the Iliad in ancient Greek. And he was doing his PhD at, at University of Chicago. And Hector suggested to his wife why he was going to go fight Achilles and then lose. And the translation was originally translated as arete, qual, uh, virtue. And it didn't make sense to him until he was reading this passage. And he realized that the answer he was looking for was that arete should have been translated as quality. And that when you think about it in that context, it makes a lot of sense. And what I mean by makes a lot of sense is that Hector is explaining to his wife that he's going to go fight Achilles. And after he fights him and loses, all of these horrible things are going to happen. But that doesn't matter because he has to do it for arete, for the sake of quality. And Persig suggests that makes sense because, you know, Hector was the greatest warrior in a multi-hundred year, you know, millennium long like line of warriors in this culture. And Achilles was the best in the Greek history. So of course they had to go do this because they were going to live forever as a story. And, and if the Iliad is true, then they do, right? Because it was true quality oh, in a obviously dark and violent way. I think that actually makes a lot of sense uh, that quality is the one thing that lives forever. I think if you've ever done something really, really well in a sporting moment or something like it, just everyone sees it and is kind of drawn to it and sees it like a great team, a great love, uh, even just the basic love between a parent and a child. You see it and it just brings a smile to your face because it's true quality. I think when you put those things together, I think you can find an enormous amount of meaning in life by doing something of quality, because that is a way to live kind of on past yourself by experiencing something of quality, whether that's love or whether it's being part of a great team or a great company uh, or overcoming unavoidable suffering, I think is a kind of an inherent quality thing to do. Those are the three books that kind of guided me to doing kind of what I'm doing today. Uh, it doesn't tie together that easily, but it's for me, it's a long answer, but it's kind of where I find kind of the meaning of life or purpose. I'm really excited to add each of these to our book list. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? Uh, this was my mom. Uh, when I could spend a lot of time with my mom before she was dying, when she was in the hospital. And she was really clear. She was, uh, she was both open-minded and not open-minded in the sense. She said, Sandy, you can do anything you want, but be great at it. And it was just very clear. She said, there's nothing worth doing if you're not going to be great at it. Um, but beyond that, don't really care what you do. Right, go try to sing in the opera or go start a business, but just do it really, really well, and that's how you'll make me proud. And I thought that was really good advice and a good way to think about life. Uh, and I think it's generally right. There's a wonderful book called Dark Horse. Uh, I think it's by a professor at Harvard on education. That I think it's totally right. People who just find what they love to do but become really good at it tend to do very well, and that's the most important path to success, far more than following someone else's path. I love that. That's a great piece of advice. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I give you two answers to this. The short one is one someone told me, said fundraising is not that hard. Build a really good business that makes money. People will give you money if you can do that. And I would say that's correct. Um, so that's true. Just focus on building a really good business and the rest kind of takes care of itself. That's pretty good entrepreneurship advice that I would go with. Uh, the other answer, the one that I talk about more at work, when people ask about working for a better place for us, they're always wondering like, oh, could I go somewhere else and optimize my career as a SaaS person? And I tend to say kind of three things and three things that I learned from my parents. So the first is, uh, People always tell you that at the end of your life, uh, you know, you can read books on this and I don't think they're true. No one ever wishes they worked more. And I can say definitively, I spent a lot of the time in my, my mom's last year with her 
And she was about 46 when she died. And she did not think that. She was incredibly proud of the what she had accomplished at, at work. And my mom was an estate lawyer. She wrote, you know, wealthy people's wills and structured their trusts and structured their estates. There's some meaning in that, but I'm not saying that's like, you're not curing cancer, right? But it really mattered to her. And I mean, deathbed mattered to her because she was really, really, really good. And that's what I mean when I answered that question earlier about quality. Like to be truly good at something is deeply meaningful. And I think that's true because I think it's that moment of touching quality. So find something you can be great at. Uh, At the same time, when I was uh, in my 20s, I ran into, I was walking through a mall and I was wearing a Princeton shirt. And this guy walked up and said, oh, did you go to Princeton? I said, yeah, I I did. He said, what year were you? I said, 06. Did you go to Princeton? He says, yeah. I'm like, what year were you? He's like, 69. I said, oh, that's cool. What do you do now? And we're living in Toronto. And there's not that many you know, people who went to Princeton living in Toronto. So I'm like, well, that's cool. Like, what do you do now? He's like, I'm a lawyer. Oh, well, you're a lawyer. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. What firm are you at? And he goes, and he says the firm. No, oh, my dad is a partner at that firm. And he looks at me and he says, I knew you as a kid. I went to your cottage. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Because he, he worked with my dad. And you know, law firms aren't always that big. So invites me out with some of his, some of his colleagues. And they wanted to to talk about, you know, it was wonderful for me because it's very rare to connect with people who knew your parents from Boston so long ago. And we're talking about this and don't worry, I'm getting somewhere here. And we're, we're talking with this experience. They're telling me stories, my dad and at lunch. And one of them gets this look in their eyes. And they're like, I got to tell you, your dad, he was the best. And I'm thinking he's going to say best lawyer. He's like, he was the best biller that I've ever known. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He's like, he, oh my God, the bills he would submit to clients. They were incredible. He just... He, the, the work he could do, he built so much. It was incredible. And they're all like, oh, it was incredible. It was No one's ever built as much as your father. And they were just like wowed by this. And I'm like, this is, I guess, being good at what you do, right? This is, he was truly great at what he did. But you know, 25 years after he's died, this is what these people remember, that he was the best when it came to you know, charging a very high hourly rate and doing a lot of work for clients. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the great that I want to experience. I think that was an important lesson. Um, looking at both what my mom achieved and what my dad achieved. I think what my mom achieved with that nonprofit she created is that she created something that lives on after her that really, really matters. So I'd say with entrepreneurship, like it's an odds game. You're probably going to fail. Uh, I think I read once that you should expect if you're an entrepreneur to fail like five or six times, but all you need to do is succeed once, right? Um, so you just got to be willing to commit to trying. And the thing that provides meaning to me is I think you need to choose a mountain worth dying on. Because you might fail, but you really need to know that you took your very limited time on earth and you tried something that was really hard and really good if it works, right? I think I was joking earlier, like, you know, whoever found a Beanie Babies, congratulations, he's worth billions of dollars, right? And, and good job. But most of those other efforts don't work. And I'd like to know that whatever I tried, whatever mountain I tried to climb was worth the effort, even if I didn't make it. I think that's really important. And the third part of this, and I'll summarize at the end, is life is pretty short. You know, my mom, she's 46. Uh, I think that, I, I don't think you can compromise on people. I think ultimately you got to work with the people you like. Uh, that's one of the beauties of entrepreneurship. You get to choose who you work with. Uh, and I think those, if you can do those three things, if you can have, find a chance to be great at what you do, if you can find something worth applying those skills to that matters, even if you don't succeed, but you know you tried, you know that trying really, really mattered, um, and you did it with people you really loved, I imagine at the end of your life, you're going to be pretty happy, kind of no matter how it works out. And there's a lot of luck in business, right? 
Totally. I really appreciate both those stories. I mean, that was fascinating. And I completely agree with you in that even if it doesn't work out, you'll probably still feel very fulfilled, to be honest, um, if you're working with the right people um, and you're able to pick and choose which mountain you wanted to climb. I love that metaphor. My final question to you, how do you go about hiring and making sure that you're working with the right people that you kind of want to be there with you through the grind of building better place forests? Off the top of my head, three things. First, I always like hiring people for their hobbies. I joke that if you can't be good at the thing you do for fun, you probably aren't going to be that good at the thing you have to do for work. And honestly, that's guided me pretty well. It's not, it's not a fail-safe method, but it is a general rule for life. People who are good at one thing are often good at many things. It's kind of like that saying, if you, if you have something that needs to get done, give it to someone who's busy. So that's one thing. Look for people who just kind of bring a certain level of excellence to all of their life. Not everything. No one's perfect. If the people who try to be perfect, whew, that's a tough one. <laughs> so, you know, find people who really bring, who are good at what they do. They're smart and they're hardworking. Focus on values first. People have to be good, but values are, you know, the way to think about it is values are what you fire an A player for. And that's what values really mean. And ask yourself up front, like, what is unacceptable to you? Um, and that's how you get a team that works together because everyone has to have those shared values. So someone might be super political and some environments like literally build that into their culture. There's a number of very successful companies that are famous for it. And that's their culture and they're vicious but that's the game. Others don't want that. So just decide what you want in your culture. I think, for example, perfectionism is really bad fit in an early stage company because I want people to move quickly. I want them to try stuff and I want them to make mistakes. As long as that mistake isn't something that's irreversible. If someone is like too perfectionistic, that's going to get really, really hard because they're going to criticize everybody else's B quality work when you're actually telling them like, no, no, I wanted to be, I wanted them to move quickly. That was good. They produced a B quality product in like a day. You've been working on your A plus for a month and a half. Like I want the B that weighing those two relative things. Like you want that B that's a cultural value. So you just got to define your values up front. hire people who are going to work hard, who are smart and who know what good looks like. And honestly, hiring for who you get along with is pretty important. So being pretty, I just think again, being really authentic in interviews and telling what you think is going to, you know, don't worry. It, it is literally not a bad thing. If someone walks an interview and says, I don't want to work there. That's a good thing. You just saved yourself a huge amount of time if your best employees are authentic in an interview and someone says, I don't want to work with them. Right? You do not want to bring people in who think your culture is bad and want to change it. That's going to make your life really, really hard. So just be authentic, hire people who know what good looks like and, and be honest about what your work culture is like. And I think it works out pretty well. Sandy, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A real pleasure to join. Uh, happy to answer any questions you have in the future. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sandy and learning a lot more about Better Place Force. You can follow him on Twitter at Sandy Gibson. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.